Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Welcome back. Back. How's it feeling? You know, it feels, feels great. Do you feel like you never left, man. Did you reduce emissions while you were there? Did you plant any trees in, <laughs> yeah. in Glasgow? Yeah, my carbon offsets better <laughs> Your carbon off- for my, my trip, which is probably a net negative for the planet, but, you know, it was interesting. That's just, I hate when, like, Republicans or the press do that cheap shot. It's like, how many flights were going to the climate? Yeah. Like, listen, guys. In the do- scheme of things, like, that, the, the people traveling to the climate change summit are not the ones causing We're going to need today's infrastructure to deal with tomorrow's planet. That's just kind of how it works. Yeah, that's well said. Assholes. Uh, We have an amazing show for you guys today. Uh, Our guest is Nima Elbagir, who you've heard before on the show. She's CNN's senior international correspondent. She's done incredible reporting out of Ethiopia, Sudan, Nigeria, all kinds of places. We talked about all those topics with a particular focus on the civil war in Ethiopia. It's been over a year now, Ben. It's getting worse and worse. It needs more attention. So we wanted to focus on that. Uh, we are going to cover a blockbuster New York Times report about a potential war crime in Syria, tensions on the border of Belarus and Poland and Russia and Ukraine, Biden's virtual meeting, virtual summit with Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping. Three-hour Zoom, Ben? Yeah. I mean- Three hours on a Zoom. It's tough. Uh, you, I wonder if they're hitting up the chat, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just super bored, <laughs> yeah, just yeah, tweeting yeah. the whole just time. Just tweeting links to each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, how Trump sycophants are helping seed election fraud lies in Brazil, the release of a journalist held hostage in Myanmar, uh, space debris, crazy Trump administration stories from the new books coming out, and then a call for a day of reckoning for a close U.S. ally that I wanted to run by you. Uh, but then first, don't miss the latest episode of Offline with John Favreau. He talks with international badass uh, Megan Rapino. You may have heard of her, one of the best soccer players in the history of the world. No big deal. She talks about what it's like to be an elite athlete in the social media spotlight uh, and much, much more. Very cool. Uh, and also on this week's X-Ray Vision with Jason Concepcion, uh, check it out. They dive into the latest Marvel news, teasers from Disney Plus, and the new Wheel of Time adaptations. You can subscribe to X-Ray Vision wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you're an NBA fan, which I know you are, Jason's YouTube show, All Caps NBA, is absolutely hilarious yeah, must, must watch and uh a little more uh blue than we get here uh last ben do you know we're on snapchat now i'm very excited about this have you seen the latest I've episode seen, uh, i i saw the first one uh well when we when we finish recording i'll play the latest one for you so each week we're cutting down one topic that we cover on the show into like a short funny animated digestible bite on snapchat discover it's good people need to watch it yeah l- th- last week we did the very high-minded uh fart segment um of biden and uh the oh, yeah. camilla parker bowls you know lofty stuff that's how we what we do here on uh on pod save the world so check us out on snapchat it's the only place for two 40 year old men to hang out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um okay so let's do some serious <laughs> stuff so ben over the weekend uh the new york times published this 
absolutely chilling report on a 2019 U.S. military strike on an ISIS position in Syria that may have killed up to 70 civilians, mostly women and children. Um, the Times report said the strike was conducted by a secret U.S. special operations unit called Task Force 9. And despite the fact that this action was repeatedly flagged as a potential war crime by Defense Department lawyers, it was never acknowledged by the U.S. military until the Times report came out. Uh, the Times says that Task Force 9 routinely skirts rules designed to prevent civilian casualties by claiming the strikes are in self-defense and that the unit so badly stretched the legal and practical definition of what self-defense is uh, and so routinely killed civilians that CIA officers also working in Syria reported their concerns about Task Force 9 to the Department of Defense's own inspector general. After the story posted, uh, Central Command seems to have released a new statement. They updated the story and they now claim that the strike killed 16 fighters, four civilians, and that the other 60 people, it's not clear who they were because sometimes women and children take up arms for ISIS. Um, yeah. You know, we should note that this airstrike happened in the final days of a long military operation against ISIS. These people were completely pinned down in a one square mile area that certainly included ISIS fighters, but also tens of thousands of women and children. So whether or not that, that CENTCOM statement is accurate, seems pretty fucking tone deaf uh, yeah, yeah. and wrong to argue that there was some military necessity to drop a 500 pound bomb and two 2,000 pound bombs on this group. So Ben, long story, everyone should read it in full. But like, I guess my takeaway on reading it was, I feel like DOD has a really big credibility problem on its hands here. Um, this report describes a completely broken process to protect civilians and a broken accountability process to report incidents up the chain of command. And it comes after this high-profile drone strike this summer in Kabul that killed 10 civilians. And so, you know, one of the arguments you hear that you and I have made uh, about people like Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden is that they shouldn't leak. They should go through proper channels because there's ways to hold, you know, people who do wrong things accountable. But if the proper channels are this broken, you're going to see a lot more leaks. I mean, I, what did you make of this story and and just what it says about the military's ability to police itself. I mean, I had kind of three takeaways about this. Uh, the first is it was such an extraordinary level of detail. Um, so if people haven't read this story, it literally had like communications from the time that the bomb was dropped. Yeah, and like someone, chats, chat someone literally saying in a chat, like, who dropped that bomb? You know, with horror, because they were watching the video of the women and children and then the bomb dropping on them. And that tells me, to your last point, like, this was so egregious that multiple people must have decided to go to the press. You know, like, you don't get the scale of information that was in the story um, unless there's, like, a lot of cooperation from people that feel like they had no other recourse. Mm -hmm. The second thing is there is a policy dimension to this in the sense that there are always civilian casualties. Um, it's a tragic part of American military operations, and people are right to say that throughout the post-9-11 wars, not enough attention has been paid to this issue. It is also the case, though, that Trump, at the beginning of his administration, made a point of saying, we are relaxing the standards for civilian casualties on the military, kind of made a point rhetorically of backing up, you know, Bragged about we're going to carpet bomb these people, we're going to drop the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan. And, and if you don't think that had that had an impact on something like this, 
like you, you're not living in the world as it actually operates. If the commander in chief spends four years sending a signal that he doesn't give a shit about civilian casualties, he's pardoning war criminals over here, he's celebrating the size of the bombs we drop over here, that permeates through the military. It just does. And, and it just is a reality that, you know, you get, if, if you pay, if you don't really tighten the reins on this stuff, you get these circumstances. And then the last point is the accountability one. And you know, I saw Chris Murphy making this point today. There's never any accountability for this stuff. You know, like the, the drone strike kind of methodically pieced together how seven children and a bunch of innocent people end up getting killed in this drone strike and then calculated that nobody did anything wrong, you know. And same thing here, where, you know, it, it, that statement felt tone deaf to the the story that you read, because the story that you read doesn't make it sound like they bombed a, a training camp or something where no. women, you know, some of the worst civilian casualty events that I remember from the Obama years were, were in this kind of, there's a training camp and, and, and there happened to be women and children there. This was like women and children in a distinct location, you know, set apart. It felt like, at least that's what the story said. And so if you can't find any accountability for this, um, you know, then you, you need new accountability measures. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And look, there are horrifying, tragic incidents that occurred during the Obama administration. There were weddings that were bombed. There was, yeah. there was a time when the U.S. military accidentally shelled the Pakistani military. Like, as you said, the fog of war mistakes were made. This just seems so egregious. And it seemed like there were two parallel actors fighting the same war on behalf of the U.S. coalition at the same time. There was like the standard group that were sort of watching this group through a drone feed. And then all of a sudden, this Task Force 9 you know, plane F-15 or whatever it was comes through and drops bombs. And, and the one hand didn't know what the other hand was doing. So, of course, there's just going to be horrific results there. And yeah, they, they got to figure this out. Yeah. And, and and look, first principles here is that we should not be doing this in as many places as we are. Yeah. You know, like Somalia, Yemen, um, the, potentially Afghanistan. Like, the, clearly, the balance of, of risk of civilian casualty and harm and kind of militarization of U.S. foreign policy outweighs the the occasional terrorist target we're, we're able to take out. And, and so part of this is just dismantling some of this infrastructure. But I think in this case, most people would argue that like the ISIS campaign was a campaign that needed to be waged. But if you're going to be doing that, like it's in our interest as well as, you know, consistent with who we say we are in the world um, to not be killing civilians like this. Yes. Um, you know, to the military's credit, after they completely botched that drone strike in the final days uh, of Kabul, they put out all the information they had uh, available. They did so, of course, after the New York Times investigation sort of unraveled the initial story that this was a righteous strike, that they hit some you know, ISIS infiltrator, whatever it was. They need to do the same thing here, uh, and they need to do it real fast. Yeah, and we had this process at the end of the Obama administration where there was a reporting about civilian casualties publicly that then right. NGOs usually didn't like, but you had this debate and you shared data and it was the closest you could get, I think, to having transparency around this stuff. Um, and there was a compensation uh, policy related to civilian casualties. Uh, you know, Trump obviously got rid of all that. You know, uh, I think it, you know the Biden team needs to be looking at, you know, they're talking about ending the forever wars. Like, you know, part of it is much less of this kind of military activity and also much greater transparency about it. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's turn to Belarus because there's an incredibly tense situation, a dangerous situation on the border of Poland and Belarus right now. So here's the quick backstory. So Alexander Lukashenko, who is the illegitimate dictator in charge of Belarus, is a horrible person. He stole a bunch of elections. He brutalized opposition leaders and protesters. His, his goons 
are the ones who forced down a plane a few months back that was flying through Belarusian airspace so that uh, Lukashenko's uh, intel guys could arrest a journalist on board. That's who this guy is. Um, in response to those actions, the U.S. and the European Union slapped a bunch of sanctions on Belarus. So the Belarusian government has been flying thousands of migrants from Iraq and Syria to Belarus, then busing them to the border and encouraging these migrants, mostly men, women, children, a lot of them pregnant, to cross over the border into European Union countries like Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland to seek asylum. Um, you can see data, the number of flights from the Middle East to Minsk has literally doubled in recent weeks. The response from Poland has been brutal uh, for, I mean, just to put it bluntly, they sent thousands of troops to the border to repel people. Uh, last night, there were reports that these migrants were sprayed with water cannons and tear gas. There's reports that at least 11 migrants have died, mostly because they froze to death because it's winter and it's freezing. The EU is fully backing Poland. They're calling Lukashenko's actions a hybrid attack on the European Union. Uh, the Russians are criticizing Poland, backing Belarus because they're a client state. Um, it's hard to get great information on what's happening because Poland is now blocking journalists or aid groups or other officials from the border area. But I mean, Ben, this is horrific. What do you think that European Union can or should do about Belarus essentially using human beings as weapons? And then I guess the flip side is, you know, how hard should they push back against the Polish government brutalizing them, knowing that that response is politically popular within Poland and it seemingly has the backing of the entire European Union so far? Yeah, this is not a story that makes you feel that great about the state of the world. No, <laughs> I mean, no. Because uh, it's about the most dystopian thing you yes. can imagine, like flying families who want to be refugees to a police state so that they then destabilize European politics. But I mean, I think people should recall that, first of all, Russia is clearly involved in this. Um, they've been front and center throughout. They've basically turned Lukashenko into client state since he's been hanging on by a thread since he stole that election. And they are the ones who kind of created this playbook. And I think part of what a lot of us felt in 2015 and 2016 is the scale of their kind of indiscriminate use of force in Syria mm -hmm. was in part done with the knowledge that it was going to drive masses of refugees into Europe um, in ways that would destabilize European politics. You guys thought that was like kind of part of the playbook? I mean, it was hard not to... To think that, well, you know, I mean, we don't know. I, I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know for sure. Um, but let's just say it was a, you know, a, a secondary effect that that they were okay with. And 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 ironically, not only does it kind of destabilize European politics, but then it enables and empowers the more right wing nationalist governments who then undermine support for democratic values. Right. So you, in Poland, even though the Law and Justice Party um, is, you know fascist adjacent. They're, they actually don't love the Russians because of that history. But still, the general strengthening of anti-immigrant right-wing nationalist parties across Europe is in their interest. So it's just, it's gross across the board and just shows you there, there's no bottom with like the Lukashenko's and Putin's of the world, period. And I mean, look, I, I think there's not all that much. Um, what What they need to do is take a step back and and, and figure out a more effective, humane migration policy. They have the same problem we do. Because what they've kind of been doing since the refugee crisis is like paying off Turkey and other countries to just create a buffer. Right. And I think right? Belarus is sort of part of and that. And Belarus is part of that buffer because yeah. um, they're not in the EU proper. But so, so 
that's not the solution. So, so what they what they what they're realizing now is how much leverage they gave to those buffer states, you know, and what they need is a more orderly process for processing asylum claims, determining how many people can be resettled, and determining how you deal in a humane fashion with people that you can't let in, and 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 so is you're not giving them this leverage because they exploit the weak spots. Uh, other than that, I mean, I think you know all you can do is continue to. To, to, to keep Lukashenko on ice and try to strengthen the, the Belarusian opposition, which clearly represents a majority of the country. Yeah, and I guess maybe see if you can encourage the Iraqis to stop flights from Iraq to Belarus. But I mean, there's nothing you can do about flights from Damascus to Belarus. I'm sure the Russians can just say, nope, you got to do that. Yeah, it's heart-wrenching reading the, the, the Iraqi voices in the story. Just yeah, a lot like, of Kurds. Yeah, I, I don't care. I'll stay here and freeze. And uh, I mean, this... Like, un- unfortunately, because of climate change, like this, the migration issues are just going to get more acute. And I think what's ultimately going to be needed is some really kind of global new agreement about how to manage migration flows. But that's if you think climate change is hard, you know, um, dealing with migration with national governments is, is going to be harder. Yes, agreed. Um, staying in the same neighborhood, uh, we mentioned this last week, but there is once again increasing concern about Russian troop buildups on the border of Ukraine. Uh, you know, Ukraine and Russia have been engaged in basically a, a low-grade, near-constant state of war since uh, Russia invaded Crimea back in 2014. A lot of that happens via Russia's support for separatist groups in the area. But Ukraine's defense minister says that there are now currently 90,000 Russian troops on the border in the border region. So you could see how that'd be a touch alarming. Um, the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg called on Russia to be more transparent about their military activities. We talked last week about how the CIA director, Bill Burns, took a trip to Moscow to talk about this directly with Putin. The French and German foreign ministers put out a joint statement, you know, basically warning Russia not to take military action. So, Ben, I feel like we have this conversation that we're having right now, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. There's always concern about this buildup on the Ukrainian border. What do you think Putin's play is here? Is he lulling us into complacency? Is he just an aggressive asshole at all times, like keeping everybody off balance, something worse? Like, do you have a read on this? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, part of this is just kind of periodically send the message that he has this capacity to just invade Ukraine whenever he feels like it. I think I was trying to think of a new way to talk about this. I mean, it, it's not unlike the dealing with the Republican Party, right? Like Putin, mm. very similar. And, and I don't mean in like the kind of Russiagate sense. I mean, in the sense that Putin plays by no rules, and we still kind of play by some rules, mm-hmm. you know, in this space. Um, and, uh, and 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 so it's it's the same frustration you have where you think that the old playbook might moderate, you know, the extreme behavior of Republicans here, and it never does. In fact, it gets worse. And, and and to that end, I think we have to just be putting on the table much more unconventional responses than like just you might face some more sanctions, you know? And, and, you know, one thing I've talked about is um, whether the United States should put on the table just a, a radical amount of transparency about what we know about Putin, his wealth, his associates, their wealth, you know? Um, just that's outside the normal rule book, but, like, this guy is way outside the rule book. Or, or I think, yeah, getting with the Europeans and being like, okay, what are the things that really hit directly. And then you start looking at like that pipeline through Germany. Right. Um, but because it just feels like we're playing, you know, we have the old playbook of like sanctions and statements and which are important and, you know, can have a deterrent effect. Um, but he has to see a level of escalation 
that is a risk to him that goes beyond stuff that he's learned to live with, you know? Yeah, he does not seem to, doesn't seem all that deterred. Yeah, I mean, you know, he is, I mean, like, I, I, you know, this, it's always hard to kind of judge what he hasn't done that he could, I mean, because presumably they had the military wherewithal to just like conquer Ukraine and, and, and try to annex it, you know? Right, right. Um, and he didn't do that. That may be because he thought there'd be like, you know, an insurgency or something, but it may also just be because sanctions reached a point that he's like, okay, I can go this far, but I won't go farther. You know, so you, it's always hard to judge when he's backing down because he's always pushing a little bit. Um, but, you know, this is just, um, it is like, it's just a guy that doesn't recognize the rule book. And so it's like you're playing a game of international politics where there were these agreed upon rules and suddenly one player decided that none of the rules apply anymore and you're still kind of operating in it, you know, mm -hmm. and that makes it difficult. Yeah. And, and unlike here, uh, every time he invades something, it gives him a little political bump. Yeah. I'm sure he likes it. It's good. Um, speaking of hard to deter people, let's talk about China. So on Monday, uh, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping talked on a video conference for three hours. Sounds absolutely brutal. This was their third conversation since Biden took office. Uh, all of them have been remote, I believe, because of COVID. The White House said that the two leaders discussed Afghanistan, North Korea, Iran, human rights, climate change, and Taiwan. Clearly, there was an effort around this, you know, civets, this uh, video call to calm some of the rhetoric that we saw coming out of earlier meetings between Biden's team and Chinese officials that were insanely caustic. Um, Biden also reaffirmed that there was no change to the U.S. policy when it comes to Taiwan. He raised some eyebrows during a recent CNN town hall when he said, yes, the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense if attacked by China. Normally, the U.S. is ambiguous in that answer. We give Taiwan weapons and arm them in other ways, but you don't say that there would be a military response. The Biden-Xi conversation comes a few days after China surprised the COP26 climate summit attendees by saying they would do more to reduce climate emissions, including more clean energy, uh, stopping deforestation, curbing methane emissions. Of course, that announcement is tempered by the reality that Chinese coal production is near an all-time high. So, Ben, I think it's worth sort of like thinking about what was new and notable out of that meeting. And then also more broadly, just stepping back and, and making sure leaders get that Xi Jinping recently uh, has become one of the most powerful leaders in Chinese history. Uh, the list is basically Xi, Chairman Mao, uh, and Deng Xiaoping. Mao was the founding father of modern China. Uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, has kind of cleaned up his mess after he left, after the Cultural Revolution, when he pushed for the economic reforms that were key to China becoming the economic powerhouse that it is today. And now Xi is literally rewriting Chinese history to put himself in their company in that pantheon. So that's the context of this meeting. Ben, anything jump out of to you from this conversation, the White House readouts around it, the climate announcement, like anything between the U.S. and China? Well, I, first of all, I think what you, the, where you ended is really important. Like they just went through their process. I guess it's like, it's kind of like an election, <laughs> yeah. except it's not. Um, but I'm kind of revalidating Xi Jinping's rule. And in so doing, they basically you know, entrenched and elevated everything that he's doing. So yes, at the top line is like, he's now in the pantheon with Mao and Deng Xiaoping, and he's updated Marxist thought for the 21st century. But within that, what that means is that all these moves, like much more state control over the economy and the tech sector, much more assertive in the foreign policy space, much more kind of nationalist. Like this is... They, they've all agreed this is the direction, like the, this is working. We want to do more of this, mm -hmm. you know, and he's very strong in that system. If, if there were any remaining, you know, 
power bases or critics like he is they might be in jail by now yeah. yeah yeah so this is this is a guy who's feeling very powerful right now right and feeling like he's gonna be there after joe biden's gone whenever that is you know um and that's a difficult place to be um i think in terms of uh if you listen in between the tea leaves and Man, that must have been a deadly three-hour Zoom because with the oh. Chinese, it's not a conversation. It's just like you're reading God. talking points to each other. So they're like reading talking points on a Zoom. Um, you know, I'm just imagining being on there and like trying to scroll through the boxes. And just. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, the only thing that kind of really stuck out is like this um, effort to, to stress that they're trying to kind of put a floor underneath things. They're not actually trying to solve things. It's mm-hmm. like... We basically agree we have to talk to each other more so that we don't end up in a war over Taiwan or, you know. Yeah, the White House called it managing the competition. Yeah. They didn't want to say, like, calming things down. They want managing competition, sure. And because usually what happens out of these things is there's, like, a joint statement that agrees to work together on a bunch of stuff and maybe highlights the one area where you had a breakthrough, like, on climate or something. And then there's these working groups that are tasked to meet. We used to have something called like the strategic and economic dialogue. Oh, like, yeah. But it was, it was a big deal. Like people came and met on all these issues. They None of that. It was just like a Zoom, uh, competitive readouts, like no breakthroughs, but we don't end up in a war. But that's good. I mean, I'd, ra- I'd rather <laughs> yeah, that happen, better, yeah. right? It's, it's good that that happened. Um, but it, it does feel like they're just far apart. On the climate thing. I think Kerry, you know, uh, when I was there and I saw him, like he had been meeting with them to like three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like he was, I think he really just wanted to have them part of what happened in Glasgow. So it didn't feel like they were totally on the sidelines. And so they, they you know, they, they signed up to some wording. They agreed to do some stuff on like methane. And, but like it, the problem is they're still building coal plants, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so it's like, they, they've said good things about where they want to end up in like 2030 and the pivot they're making away from this stuff. But every year that they continue to, to contribute to the escalation of the problem is obviously a big problem. Um, and, and the I guess the last thing I'd say is that the Biden team is clearly like preparing and not wanting to have this appear too positive. You know they're 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 settling in for this to be the defining issue of their foreign policy. Th- this competition with China, and you know we talked about the G20 and the resolution of the tariff issue with the Europeans. Mm-hmm. That's in part about like let's clear the decks of the Europeans so we can go into this together with the Chinese. Like you just have a sense that this is the space we're going to be watching um, with Taiwan and trade and tech is like the and human rights is like the key. I don't want to say battlegrounds, but areas of contention. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, uh, whether the Chinese know it or not, I mean, I, you know, Joe Biden's probably a lot less hawkish than uh, all the alternatives for them. So, you know, they might want to make this work. Yeah, I, I that's it. You know, it's a good point. And I think that they were slow to understand the extent to which, um, you know, they, they all of American politics has kind of moved to some version of a position that is very concerned about China. Yeah, yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. Here's an issue to add to, to your tickler file, Ben, just one to, to keep an eye on, which is the likelihood of future election fraud claims in Brazil by President Bolsonaro and the way those claims are being helped by Trump sycophants in the U.S., the New York Times had a long, interesting piece about this over the weekend. It's worth reading it in full. But the gist is that Bolsonaro is already questioning the legitimacy of next year's presidential election, one where he faces, will likely face a tough uh, opponent, former President Lula da Silva. Uh, right-wing assholes like Donald Trump Jr. and Steve Bannon are repeating you know, these election fraud claims already, including at the CPAC Brazil, again, another great American export. And, and didn't the Debbie Dad guy go down there? Uh, what's his name? Which um, you, you got to narrow that Jason, down. Oh, yeah, uh, Jason, Jason Miller. Miller. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which Debbie Dad. Yeah. Uh, Bolsonaro is also importing you know, basically right-wing infrastructure is the best way to describe it. So Project Veritas, the guys who like infiltrate, quote-unquote, liberal groups, uh, is said they're expanding to Brazil. And then Bolsonaro welcomed Jason Miller because he's welcoming in all these right-wing-backed social media sites like Parler and Getter because he knows <laughs> Getter makes me laugh because <laughs> he knows that they can't be pressured to take down his lies the way that Facebook and Twitter can. So lots of interesting details in this story like the fact that Bolsonaro's son did a presentation at that uh, insane voter fraud conference that the MyPillow guy put on in South Dakota. Bolsonaro's son was also uh, in D.C. on the day of the January 6th attacks, which is weird. So <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, yeah say the least. Uh, so, but, you know, this presidential election is massively consequential for Brazil, for the region, for the world. Like if you care about the the Amazon, you probably don't want Bolsonaro to be reelected. Yes. But this nexus, I think, of right-wing Trump aides and right-wing leaders like Bolsonaro and Viktor Orban is something we obsess about and, and worth watching. It's a real problem. And because there's like a gravy train for these guys, but they're just out there spreading these tactics of massive disinformation, gaslighting, norm-breaking, you know, narratives about election theft. Um, and you know those guys, it's going to be like a revolving door down there mm -hmm. between now and the election. Because at minimum for them, it's a grift. And at maximum, they help somebody steal an election yeah. or yeah. throw a country into chaos. Uh, so it's a, it's a big challenge. Bolsonaro is, is like the, the closest thing you get to like someone just like fully approximating and embracing Trumpism, you know? Yeah. And the stakes for, for a Lula victory down there are enormous because it's the future of democracy in South America. It's the future of the planet if the Amazon is destroyed. Um, so the stakes can be higher. So, it, you know, it can feel comical. The other thing is that there's like this crop of next gen, you know, it's like the Netanyahu kid and the mm -hmm. the Bolsonaro kid oh, yeah. and Don Jr. and the Duterte daughter and all that, you know. There's some real shitty presidential kids out there. Yeah. I mean, you know, what happened to just, I don't know. I mean, Sasha and Malia are pretty cool. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. And they're just normal kids. Yeah. They just have to go, go live they're, your life. They're not trying to like swing elections. Yeah. And, and <laughs> Exporting nationalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, seriously. Like, Selling spyware like, for dad to the UAE. Like, what? go go get a hobby. And that's the one thing, the Veritas thing, you know, that that had like the Eric Prince nexus. I yeah, think. Yeah, like yeah. that's some creepy shit. Like it, it, it's easy to laugh at it. 
But they actually know what they're doing and they're funded. You know, like they have money from God knows where. They have technology. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, they, they know how to create a conspiracy theory and spread it. They know how to get in Brazil last time they got in these WhatsApp groups, mm-hmm. you know, so it gets beyond even Facebook like yep, and Telegram like, too, Facebook, yeah. Facebook adjacent there. Um, so it's 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 one of these things that you can laugh at because it is funny what a bunch of fucking assholes these guys are. But then like you realize it, it, it's actually also very serious. Yeah, <laughs> and look, I listened to enough Steve Bannon to know that it's deliberate. I mean, they talk about their kind of plan and sort of like the domino of nationalist leaders that they're trying to support. As an avid listener of the pod, yeah. uh, w- which countries does he bring up the most? There, there's, a, there's a lot of Orban. I think they talk about Poland uh, fairly regularly. They're yeah. big Bolsonaro fans. So, you know, it's ones you'd expect. There's some summit coming up in Europe between like Salvini and Orban and the Poles. It, it just has all the makings of being a terrible thing. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hopefully Richard Spencer will Bannon speak. Bannon probably like, you know, uh, like a, Bannon, that to, what what Glasgow was to me, like Bannon could do that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm here with a young stormtrooper <laughs> and I'll be following that up with an interview with Victor Orban. You He'll know? dial in from yeah, prison. Yeah, 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 it'll be great. Him and uh, Netanyahu's kid. Uh, so we've done a lot of bad news, Ben. Uh, there's some good news. So Danny Fenster, uh, an American journalist who had been held hostage by the coup leaders in Myanmar since May, was finally released on Monday and allowed to leave the country and come home to the United States. So Danny Fenster's release came after a humanitarian visit by former governor and diplomat Bill Richardson. It was a bit of a surprise since Fenster had just been sentenced to 11 years in prison by the Burmese government. And initially, human rights groups uh, like Human Rights Watch were furious about Bill Richardson's visit because they said it gave the government, uh, the military junta, legitimacy, a propaganda win, and initially... Richardson said that he hadn't raised Fencer's case and was instead focused on delivering like vaccines and getting someone from his foundation out of prison instead. Um, the broader context here is that Burma's military staged this coup back in February. There have been huge protests. There's been a massive general strike, a brutal military crackdown, over a thousand people killed by the government. Richardson has a history of going on these specific humanitarian missions, including to Burma, starting back in 1994. So Ben, unequivocally good news here for Danny Fenster and his family. Did you have the same like total whiplash that I did? Like initially, people were like shitting all over Richardson and the press, attacking him for going to Burma, saying he didn't raise Fenster's case. Then all of a sudden he's out. Like, do you have any idea what happened? Yeah, I mean, I first of all, it's great news that uh, Danny Fenster's out and, and his family's done a great job keeping his case uh, front and center. Um, the whole thing had a, a really retro feel to me, Tommy, like, mm-hmm. including like Bill Richardson's involvement. Like, like yes. I mean, like just, I mean, I'm glad this worked, but like, it's not like Bill, if they, the, the Burmese junta's intel is that like Bill Richardson's like, like a big player. He's the guy, he's dialed <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, but I, cause here's the thing that's kind of sad about it though. Like, um, is, is this is the old feeling of like, this is this weird military junta hermit kingdom that is totally walled off and periodically people like bill richardson fly there and and one prisoner is released you know and 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 the problem with that is that so so in terms of what happened i think you know a lot of governments are probably spending a lot of time raising this case and they do the sentence but they like having high profile media visits like bill richardson so they kind of use that to address an issue that they're probably already trying to figure out some way to address. So they, and I saw that prison sentence. I thought, there's no way they're going to keep this guy in prison for this long. It's always something that they trade away for something. And it's usually some visit that is seen as legitimizing them. And so the problem with this routine is all the governments are spending all their time 
on like a case like this and not on like the underlying problems of what is happening there, you know, like the, the mass repression, et cetera. So, so to me, it just feels like this is the, the, the Burmese military kind of returning to the tried and true, really kind of North Korean playbook of, uh, of being mysterious and closed off and unpredictable, mm-hmm. but rewarding shows of legitimacy, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's, a, it's an unalloyed good that, that Danny Fencer's out and coming home. Um, but underneath that, it just, it seems like that means they're just returning to the old playbook, you know? Yeah. It gave me very North Korea vibes. It reminded me of when uh, Bill Clinton went to North Korea for President Obama to get back a journalist who had been taken hostage. Yeah. And it was kind of like, that was great that she was released, but like nothing changed. You know, like it, it's just this kind of game that they play that um, tragically has like, you know, people's lives in the middle of it. Yeah. People like Jason resign. Yeah. You know, you, there's more governments taking uh, journalists hostage and individuals hostage than I think any terrorist group these days. Yeah. Um, ben, I have a new thing for us all to worry about, all the listeners today. New, new anxiety just dropped. Uh, space debris. So on Monday, Russia reportedly tested an anti-satellite missile that blew up whatever target was. It was one of their own satellites, I believe, and scattered hundreds of thousands of pieces of space debris into space. 1,500 of them are big enough to track somehow. And I guess it was so concerning that the astronauts aboard the International Space Station had to take shelter for two hours as a precaution. Two of those four astronauts are Russian, by the way. Uh, This Again, like the this was the Russian military blowing up one of their own satellites was on an American satellite blown up, but not cool. Uh, and the the Russian response is basically, you know, chillax, leave us alone. We're going to do what we want. The U.S. Space Command says the debris will remain in orbit for years, potentially decades, and pose risk to all space travelers. So great, super fun. Yeah, if you ever read like about the amount of space junk up there. Uh... It's a little concerning. It does seem like there's a lot. feels like someone needs to figure out how to clean that up. Uh, the only the angle I've taken- Dyson vac or Yeah, something. yeah. Someone just invented- Doesn't it just burn up once it, it goes in? Like, how, can you just pull into orbit so I think torches? most of it just burns up in the atmosphere, but like maybe you need like a mini black hole up there. I don't know. Ooh. Um, I think that uh, one of the problems here, though, is you might hear this and be like, what the fuck are the Russians doing up there with these weapons? One of the reasons why there's not better rules governing what weapons you mess around with in space is that the United States has spent- decades blocking that because we have this fetish for missile defense mm-hmm. so we have no you know high horse to get on thank here. you reagan yeah i mean or, or just this kind of weird yeah this weird like mythology that we can construct space-based missile defense that is like an iron dome over the entire mm-hmm. united states you know uh, that th- th- that is part of the reason not the only reason the russians are obviously not uh been good actors at all in recent years, um, that there's not really a lot of norms and agreements and arms control governing like what you you, you do in space. Yeah, well, those monsters launched that poor fucking dog up there back in the day. That, yeah, I know. I, Russia. I, you know, Where was Space Force? I, I was asleep at the switch here. So my kid, you know, was really into space and I was reading her this book about like the history of space and stuff. And so that starts with like, you know, here are the rockets have taken people into space, but it starts with like the dog. And so I'm telling my daughter about this, and and she said, like, "What happened to the dog?" Tough. It's these are the kind of tough, tough conversation. Right? Yeah. It's a tough answer. Where do you go with that one? Heaven, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, like it's, it's like heaven's always like a safe uh, vacation. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's tough. Okay, well, now that we uh, covered uh, dead dogs, uh, here's some crazy reports, Ben, for you about the last gasps of the Trump administration from John Carl's book. Is that a fun way to close? Yeah, after which I might have a few words about John Carl. Good. Okay. 
Good. So, okay. <laughs> There's three little distinct pieces. We can take them one at a time. The book says that after the election, you know, we're, they're, they're doing the whole Stop the Steal movement. Mike Flynn, former head of intelligence, former national security advisor for uh, military intelligence head, former national security advisor for Donald Trump, now on the outside. Apparently, he called the Pentagon. He called a guy named Ezra Cohen Watnick, who's been yeah, discussed yeah, on this Ka- show. Cash Patel adjacent. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he told Ezra to fly back to the U.S. from some Middle East trip he had been taking and, I guess, prepare the military to seize the ballots and try to overturn the election. And I guess, you know, Ezra Cohen Watnick, uh, according to this John Carl book, pushed back, said the election was over, said, you know, Flynn sounded manic. And Flynn apparently screamed at him, don't be a quitter. And went nuts, and they've never spoken again. So, military coup was attempted. It's always sad when relationships like that sever (laughs) over things like your incapacity to implement the military coup on behalf of a complete and utter fucking lunatic who was somehow a three-star general and national security advisor and then pardoned by the president of the United States. Yeah. I, I like how uh, Ezra Cohen Watting was like, oh, he didn't sound like uh, the man I knew. Like, what? He's well, been a lunatic it, it, for years. The guy's years. been completely insane for years and 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 was taken far too seriously. I, I mean, like, part of what's so challenging about this, too, is that, like, life in general has basically been a massive troll of people with our politics uh-huh. for the last recent years. So there'll be things like, you know, you'll start saying, and I think we talked at the time on this podcast in December hey, we're hearing some bad shit about what yep. Cash Patel and crew is doing over at DOD. Um, and and like, this feels like a coup. And people are like, don't be hysterical. Yes. You know? yep. And now it's like, we would like the United States military to seize the ballots, to overthrow the government, to install somebody. It's like, at what point does that just become a coup? Yeah, hey, you know? Ross Douthat, when, <laughs> yeah, when do we get to call that a coup? It's like, when is something a lie? When is someone a racist? When is it a fucking coup? Like, at yeah. this point, like, we will be debating whether to talk about fascism in this country from a concentration camp run by Cash Patel and Mike Flynn. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, the, the, like, the Venn diagram of, of this description yeah. and coup is yeah. just a circle. Yeah, we'll, we'll all be in the camps and... Playbook will be owning us and saying the hysterical libs say that because the food isn't good at the camp that, you know, anyway, I just. <laughs> it gets crazier. Here's another one for you. Uh, the book also reports that Sidney Powell called the same guy, Ezra Cohen Watnick, and told him that then CIA director. Gina, Gee, I wonder who the source for this was. I know. Gina Haspel, the CIA director. Uh, Sidney Powell said that she had been taken custody in Germany and that the DOD needed to launch a special operations mission to go get her. Powell thought that Gina Haspel was injured while trying to seize a computer server because 60-year-old CIA directors often personally go on like Mission Impossible-type missions to seize a server. Um, But this was, in Powell's mind, part of a conspiracy to overturn the election. Gina Haspel was part of it, and Powell wanted DOD to get the server and then force her to confess. Does that make you feel good? And this is someone who had like the ear of the president of the United States. It was in the Oval Office. In the Oval Office on a regular basis. For martial law. I mean, like how, like people next time, like God forbid, you know, let's hope there's not next time. Could people just, instead of talking to John Carl or writing anonymous op-eds, could you just tell us when this is happening? Yeah, be useful in real time. Could somebody, because clearly a lot of people are interacting with this kind of information. Could you please just walk out and say, hey, the president's lawyer thinks that the CIA director is kidnapped in Germany and has something to do with the fucking election. Maybe someone should look into that. 
This last one, I think. Wait, I'm going to ask you a question. Please. What is more concerning to you? That people who actually believe these conspiracy theories or people who like, because what you're seeing with Sidney Powell and the MyPillow guys, they seem to like believe them or the people that like are so cynical, like Bannon probably, that he's just manipulating them. Like who is scarier to you? You know, I think the scare. Well, that's a really hard as a question. Bannon as a Bannon aficionado. Yeah, I think Bannon knows that Trump is he knows a shameless it. idiot. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and he'll just use whatever mouthpieces available to him. I think Trump genuinely talks himself into believing these conspiracy it theories. Feels like it. And I think the thing that makes me the most unsettled is the way that reality just sort of like acquiesces around him in the form of the Republican Party. So, and here's why that's so scary: because Donald Trump could be president again. Mm-hmm. Probably like a fifty percent chance, right? Um, people who believe conspiracy theories and talk them into them, like act on those beliefs. Oh yeah, you know? all the time. So actually, I used to think it was scarier when people were so cynical that they just manipulated them. But like, actually now I've, I'm flipping because these people are fucking batshit crazy. Yeah, and, and what you need to know about the rhetoric, you know, the, on the sort of the Bannon podcasts or all these white nationalist groups, is it's all apocalyptic. It's yeah. all end of days. It's all existential. Like we we kill them or they kill us kind of vibe. And of course, someone's going to act on that. You got me listening to that. that that's some, you know, that's like a rabbit hole, man. It's dark. If and because I used to always say to, and I used to go to the websites. I, you know, I used to go to like Breitbart all the time and stuff. Just check that out, you know, and. um what you want to tell people is like all these libs, you know, were like, oh, Fox is, you know, so bad. It's like Fox is like soft gateway drug, man. Yes. <laughs> like, it gets like, real worse. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah. Fox is a, an edible after school one day. And then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, you're, you know, you're doing heroin, man. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the last one that really freaked me out. So the final guy, the acting secretary of defense at the very end of the Trump administration, Christopher Miller, said that his strategy to dissuade Trump from attacking Iran was to act like, quote, a fucking madman and like push really hard, walk him through all the grisly details of what a strike against Iran's nuclear facilities would entail. And that his whole like galaxy brain strategy was to be so hawkish in these meetings that it was reverse psychology and it made Trump chill out um, in response. How do you feel about that? Pitching Donald Trump crazy military action against Iran in an effort to dissuade him. I mean, like what, like, you know, Tommy, like so close, (laughs) we're so close to just complete and utter, like the whole thing falling apart. Um, But the other, so there's like the meta concern of like, we were that close and we are like, like on a roller coaster, you know, the roller coaster is going up and it's going, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like climbing up Mm -hmm. and you know, what's coming. Like kind of feels like that's where we are in American politics right now, like, like the midterms and then Trump running again. And like, and and like, you know, that the other side of the roller coaster is going to be much worse than last time because we're going to start from there. We're not starting at the beginning with like the committee to save America and all stuff. We're starting at the end with the the crazy people will be there at the beginning next time. The other thing is the the personal grievance piece, which I have to come to here is, is it like we spend like years pain, painfully negotiating this intricate nuclear deal to roll back their nuclear program that they just go and vomit on and say we gave them 150 billion dollars and 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 like we are accountable to the smallest detail you know like i every political reporter is an expert on centrifuge technology and these guys this is their iran policy and and like received Far less scrutiny than our Iran policy. Like, like, like the the mainstream media like gave us a fucking colonoscopy every day for the the 
last year and a half of the Obama administration after we concluded the Iran nuclear deal in a way that they never once scrutinized the complete lunatic fringe policymaking that continues to be the policy and approach of the Republican Party such that to avoid the logic of their own policy, which is we're going to war with Iran, we have to act like Dr. Strangelove? Uh-huh. Like- That was it. All right, man. I mean, I, I give up. <laughs> What's the point? Why did I work? Why did uh, I go to work for uh, like what? Like um, some days you're just like, what was that about? No, no, I had a good time. I did have um, a good time. I did have a good time. Last thing for you, Ben. Uh, I want to close with uh, some audio that I want you to hear and then just react to and, and see if you agree. I'm going to ask those same lecturing politicians and media members a question now. When do we deploy troops to Australia? When do we invade Australia and free and oppressed people who are suffering under a totalitarian regime? When do we spend trillions of dollars to spread democracy in Australia? So, Ben, that was um, that was uh, noted military strategist Candace Owens. Uh, she is talking about the fact that parts of Australia have been in lockdown because of COVID on again, off again for a long time. Do you think it follows logically or is appropriate for the U.S. military to invade? I just don't know why it's taken so long uh, to reach the point. <laughs> been asleep um, the switch. I mean, part of what you're seeing here is this kind of complete globalization of stupid, where <laughs> the kind of far right conspiracy theory that leads to people thinking it's cool to like walk into a supermarket or an airplane and like punch a flight attendant in the face because they're oppressed by uh, mask mandates or vaccine requirements. That's happening in Australia now. And there are these really intense protests you know, what a coincidence in a country where Rupert Murdoch has broken the media and you have like a right wing ecosystem there. But so um, Candace Owens is probably in like dramatic, you know, weird media echo chambers of people that feel like freedom itself is being extinguished by these mandates. And, you know, logically, um, it would follow that you would want to launch a multi-trillion dollar amphibious invasion of Australia to bring it to heel, mm -hmm. which, you know, you'll recall we talked on this show about our sunbathers, you know, nude nude sunbathers who, How could I forget? who needed to go into the woods and be rescued by helicopters. And we could never determine precisely what substance or reason was behind that. Yeah, maybe, we assumed mushrooms. Maybe they were a little ahead of things. Maybe so there's a there's a school of thought that mushrooms kind of opened up your mind to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. premonition. That may be the case here. They're the Australian Cassandra. They're, they were sounding the alarm on the U.S. military invasion. Maybe that's what the AUKUS is. We're not transferring. We're not giving them nuclear subs. We're, we're sending them over there to do some business. You, I mean, you may have cracked. Do we just galaxy brain I, this? Year? I think we just galaxy brain okay. shit out of this. Well, I think we learned something today. Well, thank you, thank you, Candice, for your thoughtful military leadership. Uh, conspiracy theorists out there, if you want to really dissect the AUKUS acronym to find the code for when the invasion is going to happen, it may be embedded. Yeah. Within the structure of those letters. Or just listen to Al Jazeera backwards. <laughs> yeah. That'll do it too. Um, before we conclude, did you want to, to riff on John Carl's book? I mean, I probably shouldn't do this, but I, know. I, um, I, I mean, I, I will point out, okay, so John Carl, you and I worked with him a lot, uh -huh. engaged with him a lot, was always, let's just say, well-sourced in the Republican Party, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, that was more where he was getting his stuff from. And- like an incredibly credulous Benghazi reporter. I mean, really kept that in the briefing room day after day. And what happened to me is an email was leaked to him in which I basically intervened 
in the critical time after the attack to tell the government to side with the State Department and Hillary's version of what happened. Um, and this email came out and it caused a fucking shitstorm. And I got canceled like nine million times. I had a Fox News camera crew outside my house, like following me to my dry cleaning like a criminal. And, and then I went back and I found the actual email. And I didn't say that at all. The actual email said, actually, we have to take every agency's concerns into account, blah, blah, blah. Very boring email. Um, and Had it physically been altered when it was handed to him? It had physically been altered by the Republican staff. Right. No apology, no acknowledgement really of error. How do you not how do you fuck something up that badly and not acknowledge it? And not he, apologize he said that him? he said that his sources and there's a reason I'm doing this because I get along fine. With John Carl, I've done. Like, yeah, but accountability you know. goes both ways. But Well, my point is this, though, is that because um, he said that, well, my sources were going off of notes that they'd taken and reading emails and this, you know, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't matter. But the point I'm making is a lot of these reporters were there, like, this didn't start in 2016. <laughs> the Benghazi stuff, like, the cons- the same, he's reporting on conspiracy theories, the same people, Ezra Cohen, Watnick, mm-hmm. Michael Flynn, yeah. I'm sure, were sources back in the day oh, absolutely. They're when all like it was all like, people. here's yeah. some Benghazi's juice to keep that story juiced, right? And I just hope that there's some reflection that, that none of that is on the level, you know, that, that, that the, the, the godfather of whatever, you know, uh, of stop the steal was Benghazi. It just, it was like, and so obviously I have a personal perspective on this, but um, it's not even to single out John Carl. It's just like the, 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 the whole reporting on this kind of treats these as these like novel conspiracy theories that pop up when in fact the infrastructure of deploying conspiracy theories backed by Republican elected officials, disseminated on a mass scale by Republican social media leaning platforms, has been there since it was being fed to people in 2012, 13, 14, 15, when it was Benghazi or Hillary's server. And and I just, I wish somebody would acknowledge that and write that book, you know, that like, here's the history of how they built this machinery that we, too often in the mainstream media, allowed ourselves to, to, to validate because when they start raising that in the briefing room, you know, um, you remember from Benghazi, it, it gives the appearance that this thing is more legit than it is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Or, or like, you know, you saw it this week with, you know, some right wing media outlet made up the fact that uh, Kamala Harris was doing a French accent, just completely made yeah. up out of whole cloth, but it got reported out or tweeted out by like the Bloomberg reporter at the White House. I mean, look, I, I like John Carl. I think he's a dogged reporter. I was yeah. happy that he yeah. was in that briefing room for four years during the Trump administration. But if you fuck up something that badly, like he did with you, like you should correct it. You should owe someone an apology and you should do it publicly. And it's just, that's the least he could do. Well, and not just, again, I, because I like John Carl and I've talked to him since and, and it's the bigger than him. It's just this, this point that like, at what they have to step back from, they, they, they report on the Trump stuff and they think it's hard on the Trump stuff, but because they're not stepping back and giving this full picture, they're actually not conveying the severity of the danger to yeah, democracy. Yeah. You know? uh, okay. Uh, when we come back, we will have my conversation with Nima Elbagir uh, from CNN. We're going to talk about Ethiopia, Sudan, Nigeria. So stick around for that. Mm-hmm. 
I am so thrilled to welcome back to the show CNN's senior international correspondent, Nima Elbagir. Nima, thank you for coming back on the pod. Thank you so much for having me again. So I know you literally just hosted a, a panel conversation about this topic, Ethiopia, uh, with Senator Chris Coons and Senator Tom Tillis, this bipartisan group. So that's exciting. And I'd love to get into that a little bit in a minute. But I'm, I'm grateful that you you came on today because we're like a year into this civil war in Ethiopia. It is becoming catastrophic. And I feel like almost no one is talking about it. And it's kind of making me lose my mind. Um so just to give listeners a bit of background on what's happening. So the Ethiopian government at times with support from Eritrea has been fighting against the Tigray People's Liberation Front or TPLF since about November of 2020. The thing to know about the TPLF, they used to be in charge. They were in charge for like 30 years until there were a bunch of protests that pushed them out in 2018. And then Abiy Ahmed, who's now the prime minister, came to power. So just to speed it up a bit, uh, the fighting has ebbed and flowed since November of last year. There's been reports of, of atrocities and war crimes on both sides. At times, it seemed like the Ethiopian government was going to win in a rout, but the TPLF has managed to launch this counteroffensive. And the latest reports are that TPLF-led forces are marching towards Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, a country of 115, 120 million people. So sorry for the long windup, but just to pause there. Anything I left out and, you know, just given how hard it is to get accurate information out of Ethiopia, I mean, what do we actually know about this potential counteroffensive hitting the capital of Ethiopia? Well, the counteroffensive is really interesting because it's the result of an alliance between the Tigrayans, who are the, the minority ethnic group, so are the smallest in number, and the Oromo, who are one of the largest, if not the largest ethnic group. And, and why this is important is because of a lot of the land that the Oromo claim and, and uh, is part of the Oromo nation is around Addis. So when we think about the, these combined forces marching towards the capital, they don't literally have to march towards the capital. They now have allies and, um, and, and, and close um comrades in arms in that territory, very close on the outskirts of Tigray. And, and what I found really interesting is when we when when we reached out to ask questions about that, the TPLF were very keen to downplay that narrative, that they are in essence on the outskirts of the capital, right? Because the, the people they are allied with control a lot of that territory. They didn't really want to talk about that. And I think it's because what they're hoping is that if they downplay uh, what an upper hand they have militarily, uh, the Ethiopian government knows that they have that upper hand currently, that the US will, will still allow for some kind of negotiating mediation process that doesn't do too much damage to the TPLF and the forces around them. They are, I, I think it's important to say that luckily for the world and for those who care about what's happening in Ethiopia, the, the TPLF and those allied with them continue to say that they want to mediate. Now, of course, saying you want mediation and negotiation is very different from whatever provisos you put on mediation and negotiation. So I think that's mm -hmm. that's one very important point is that we now have this alliance that has really tipped the balance of power in this. And that's why you've seen a renewed call for civilians to arm themselves the horrifying imagery of vigilante groups in high-vis vests pointing out ethnic Tigrayans to be picked up by authorities and, and, and in what the UN has called, and the UN Human Rights Commission has often been slow to come out uh, and um, censure the Ethiopians, but the UN has called this mass arbitrary, ethnically motivated arrests. Uh, they think it's over a thousand just in Addis alone. The other key issue is the use of food as a weapon of war, right. which we've spoken about before. And I think 
really is where it is very difficult to equivocate. You know, there's a lot said about who started this. Well, the TPLF attacked the Northern Command, the Ethiopian Army's Northern Command first. They say it was um, it was an action they needed to take before they were attacked. It's it's very important not to fall into moral equivalence. At the end of the day, both sides have been accused credibly of war crimes. But what we know is that one side, the Ethiopian government, are are absolutely blockading from a humanitarian perspective to Gray. And, and we have the scary thing is that we have no idea of the numbers of people who are dying and could die. A rough estimate is over 400,000 in starvation, 2 million on the precipice of starvation. But nobody knows. Nobody's being allowed in. The Ethiopian government is obstructing data gathering. They're not releasing the data they have. Um, and, it, you know, it, that that's kind of, for me, the crux of this issue. Who is using yeah. starvation as a weapon of war? And have been doing it for months, I believe, right? I mean, I, I saw that on Monday, the United Nations said they would allocate $40 million in aid for Ethiopia. That seems like, uh, I don't know, a drop in the bucket. I don't mm -hmm. know if you could get that aid to people, but what's your sense of how far that might go? Well, every day you need something like 140-something trucks coming into Tigray because the, the resources in Tigray have been completely depleted. So you're already talking about a very expensive operation because uh, the obstruction the blockade means that there is no fuel, it's, uh, there is no uh, ability to transfer cash into Tigray. So aid agencies need to get the Ethiopian government's permission and their access to fuel and their permission to take in cash. So it makes everything exponentially more expensive. So 40 million doesn't feel like a lot in that context. But in any context, 40 million that you have no permission or approval to utilize. And we keep hearing the same things. The Ethiopian government has promised the UN that they will allow access. And those things keep not happening. And, and I think that's the bit that is so horrifying to people. And, and I, I actually, I, I raised this um, in the conversation with Senator Tillis and Senator Coons. I was like, we, we can talk about what a difficult position this is for the US. They are seeking to, to be a credible mediator between the two sides. And that means having to continuously say, we are not biased here. Both sides are guilty, right? To, to maintain that credibility with both parties. But tonight, when we go to sleep, there are people who are going to go to sleep hungry and potentially not wake up. And that reality has persisted since July, since the summer, and we're now in November. And I, and I asked Senator Coons, at what point does the administration have to make the hard decision that they will have to um, give away a little bit of their ability to, to mediate and negotiate in return for, for, for threatening and sanctioning in order to save lives now? Yeah. I mean, interestingly, uh, Chris Coons is very close to Joe Biden. I believe he flew to Addis to pass a message from Biden along to Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed several months ago. So he's someone who's very much a, a key player in this whole conversation. I mean, you talk, you brought up the Biden administration. They, they have taken this series of steps to push for a ceasefire. Most of their leverage, I think, in their mind to date has been, OK, let's pressure the Ethiopian government. Let's pressure the Eritrean government. So Biden pushed to get Ethiopia on the agenda at the G7. They've rolled out some sanctions. They've prepared for more sanctions. Uh, they've taken recently taken steps that might cut off Ethiopia's access to some important trade benefits. Uh, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, just left on a five-day trip to Africa that I believe starts in Kenya, where this topic will be the focus 
Are there more steps? I mean, you sort of hinted at it. Are there more steps that experts think Biden needs to take now? And then just to make this more complicated, like what leverage does the U.S. have or the international community have to pressure the TPLF or these other you know factions that they're aligned with? Yeah. Well, I think one key issue is that the Ethiopians, for them, their relationship with the U.S. is is all important. And they consistently say, we have a great partnership and a great relationship with the US. So how much can you tip your hand in that? I think you have to look to whether the other side of that relationship has been a credible partner. And, and I, I raised this with Senator Coons. I said, you know, it took you traveling uh, as President Biden's emissary to get the Ethiopians to admit that they were allied with the Eritreans. They had denied that for months. You went in March, or he actually predated his conversations with Prime Minister Abe. He said that he actually reached out to Prime Minister Abe at the end of last year uh, and asked him whether this was going to end in the way that Prime Minister Abe hoped it would, that there would be a military resolution to their problems with the TPLF. And he said Prime Minister Abe promised him there would be. We know how that turned out. But I said, you went in March, you were given promises and commitments. You then publicly in April acknowledged your disappointment. You, you, you publicly make that statement that those, those commitments had not been met. We are now in November. At what point are there consequence, consequences to Ethiopia for misleading the international community? In November, the human rights investigation, the joint investigation between the UN and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission, which is state appointed, released its findings. They were not allowed to go to many of the places where we know massacres have happened, where we have reported on massacres like Miriam Dengalat or uh, Mahabaradego or even some of the recent detention sites uh, in Hamada, they weren't able to go back. So really, you have to ask yourself, what benefit are we gaining other than to give Prime Minister Abe Ahmed a modesty veil? he gets to say that he is still engaging with the international community. And at what point does that become too costly to the international community in terms of life, lives lost? David Simon, who runs the Yale Genocide Studies Program, had a really interesting point. And he said that there are parallels um, in terms of the onward march that happened in Rwanda towards genocide with regards to a UN Security Council member at that point in the Rwanda context, it was France, obstructing any kind of serious movement or sanction or even designating Rwanda a genocide. Mm -hmm. In the Ethiopian context, you have Russia and China. But he also said the other really scary context is Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you could have that balkanization in the Horn of Africa should be terrifying to everyone, especially given what's happening in Sudan right now. And I guess maybe maybe I am a little emotional when I speak about this because that's the question we keep being asked by victims and their family members. When are we going to hear anything other than concern from the US? Because even the sanctions that we've spoken about, they sanctioned the Eritreans twice now. They have really intentionally not sanctioned Ethiopia to maintain that, that kind of ace in their pocket. They eventually, after we reported on it twice, started, um, they started the clock on the revocation of the market access through AGOA. But we have reached out to the State Department to consistently ask when we should expect, we, the press, the world should expect some kind of response on the on on whether the question of whether or not they believe that what is happening in Ethiopia is genocide, their genocide designation. 
that's been since June. We've been told to expect it soon. There is clearly a continuous effort by the Biden administration to maintain the ability to mediate. But given what we have just come out of in terms of four years of, of isolationism and President Trump and the loss of this sense of U.S. Uh, moral leadership, can the U.S. afford stepping back from, from, from the, the moral question? I mean, I want to ask you this question from a ge geopolitical perspective. Can the U.S. afford to be seen to have lost the moral high ground on this? No, I... I mean, I think the answer the answer is no. It should be no. And I think in the context of your your last answer, you sort of touched on two of the nightmare scenarios that I keep hearing. One is comparisons to the 1994 Rwandan genocide, where 800,000 people were massacred. The other is, you know, and and this this is speaks to the complexity of it, which is you know some writers have speculated that the TPLF's ultimate goal, because they are this smaller group of people within a big country would be to take Addis the capital and basically break the country up and push all these smaller ethnic regions to secede and balkanize the country, which would lead to mass migration, potential ethnic conflict. I mean, it, it sounds it, it sounds horrific. Um, and I guess what I'm struggling with is if that's the goal of the TPLF, um, where the pressure is I, I just I don't know I don't know what to do <laughs> I don't yeah. know what to do yeah yeah no I think I think everybody I've spoken to would say to you welcome to the club I mean even yeah. Senator Tillis and Senator I mean, Senator Tillis interestingly as the the Republican in the Senate Human Rights Caucus was pretty blunt that he feels that there should be sanctions on the Prime Minister that uh, Prime Minister Abe Ahmed given the relationship and the um, the, the mutual economic benefits that come from that relationship mm -hmm. should feel the pain personally if that saves lives Senator Coons was a bit more um, I don't want to say reticent because I think that's doing him a disservice but I think he was he was a little bit more kind of realpolitik with mm -hmm. perhaps his understanding of what the conversations are currently inside the Biden administration. But I, I do think that you, 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 you have the potential for those two nightmare scenarios in Ethiopia, because similarly to Rwanda, you have the, the kind of the communities living side by side um, and intermingled inside Addis, which is very similar to what happened in Rwanda. But then similar to what happened in the Balkans, you have the separate ethnic regions that are distinct. So you have the potential for ethnic minorities in those regions, whether the Amhara in, 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 in Tigray and, and Aramea regions now, or vice versa, them being targeted. And we've seen that with the reports of retaliation. So you basically have both nightmare scenarios and you you have the explosions today in Uganda and, and these concerns that ISIS was responsible. You have what's happening in Somalia and the potential mm -hmm. for a terror footprint there. You have Sudan. Um, I don't envy the person who has to make the decision. I just believe that you, you the biggest risk the U.S. is currently taking is the loss of political capital with the Tigrayan leadership. Because lest we forget, the Tigrayans withdrew from the towns and cities, I think calculating that it would allow them to say to the international community, well, we stepped back and we, we waited to see what would play out and we wouldn't allow our civilians to be caught in conflict, but our civilians were targeted anyway. So after seven months of inaction at that point from the global community, we stepped back in and, 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 and we retook Makale. I think it was in a space of less than a week. So I think that's the worry is if the TPLF continues to feel that the global community leaves them no option other than a military solution, 
then you could potentially see fighting in the streets of Addis. Yeah, and I, th- I think the sort of lesson from history is that once conflicts reach a sort of ethnic, religious, sectarian flavor, whether it's in in you know in Ethiopia or Northern Ireland or Pakistan, it's very hard to unring that bell um, and, and sort of get that back under control. So I do think it speaks to the need to move quickly. Um, you, you mentioned the sort of broader regional context. I mean, neighboring Sudan uh, has been dealing with a military coup since late October. There have been these massive protests. There have been government crackdowns. Do you have a sense of what the latest is on the ground, any hope of a peaceful resolution? And are these refugee flows making that more challenging, sort of out of Ethiopia into Sudan and South Sudan? See, the, the, the burden of the refugee flows has had an impact, especially on the east of Sudan, uh, and it's had an impact economically, which I uh, I think the heartbreaking part, which we've discussed before, is that Sudanese continue to host Tigrayan refugees. There is a sense that the Sudanese have stepped in where the UNHCR and other UN agencies have failed to step in, but that burden has been felt and has been destabilizing. What we're hearing um, really worryingly is that there has been a mass crackdown targeting of journalists, armed men picking up journalists from the street. One um, editor of a very prominent Sudanese newspaper, a Sudani, was chased down by, um, by, by armed men and they tried to get him to sign an affidavit saying, and this is interesting, the language they used was interesting, that he wouldn't bring the military into ill repute, which huh. under al-Bashir carried a death sentence. So it's effectively sedition. So all of this old language is coming back in. I'm really worried about tomorrow, Wednesday, which is there's going to be a mass demonstration planned because the um, the protesters are very committed to crossing the bridges and trying to meet in front of the Republican palace in the center of Khartoum. And the military is just as committed to obstructing those, those bridges. So I think the world really needs to be watching closely because what the sense I'm getting is that from speaking to when we can with the, with the internet cut off and the, the phone network limited, speaking to friends and family in Sudan, the sense we're getting is that the generals think if they can only quash the civilian protest movement, then they can force the world to acknowledge them and it will be business as usual. Yep. The worry that people have is that there is a real sense that protesters are unrelenting that they, they will not even accept one of the mediation, um, one of the negotiations that was that was floated by the US Horn of Africa envoy, Jeffrey Feltman, which is that you go back to the status quo, the military is a partner in this, and they have started their own version of the Myanmar three-finger salute, which is no to appeasement of the military, no to negotiations, and no to the military, because they feel that last time the world force them to accept the military as uh, uh, as just, you know, whether they like it or not, this is a fact of life. And look what the military did. You know, uh, one friend was telling me, we told everyone that the military would do this. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the crocodile uh, and the frog. I, I can never remember this story, but, you know, it's the scorpion sitting on the, the, the snout of the crocodile. Uh, it's exactly the same. And People now, when you speak to them, they say, well, uh, one friend said to me, I'm not, my blood is not more valuable than the blood that's already been spilt, which is, again, it goes back to this sense that the U.S. does not have the moral um, 
the moral high ground. It does not have the, the, the ability to enforce a moral status quo on the world. And because of that, these kids, and a lot of them are very young, believe that their only option is to resist and to stay yeah. out on those streets. Yeah. And, and the, the, the truth is they're probably right. I mean, you know, the lesson of Egypt or a lot of places is that brutality from the military can be overwhelming and, you know, eventually the world kind of accepts the status quo. Look at Syria right now. Um, I know you have to, to do uh, your actual job, which is CNN in like one minute. But uh, last question, in October of 2020, you reported on this incident in Nigeria where you know military forces opened fire on these peaceful protesters in Lagos, killed several, wounded several others. Then they blocked the ambulances from treating the wounded, just a horrifying thing to do. Uh, initially, the government said your report was fake news. Uh, it sounds like they're changing their tune lately. Um, Yes. Can you tell us the latest thing? Yes. Uh, it, it's interesting, given what we're discussing now, that there are so many parallels to the Ethiopia context. Very organized, pro-government presence, online campaigning and smearing, uh, and, and calling us fake news. The government um, tried to um, bring suit against us uh, and to censure CNN. And now the panel of inquiry has ended up using our investigation. Uh, they cited our findings something like 37 times, um, which is, you know, it's it's lovely yeah. because so many people, and it, it, uh, on one level, it's lovely. On another level, I guess it's, it's a little heartbreaking because so many people, exactly the same as we're seeing in Tigray, risk their lives to circumnavigate an information blockade and to circumnavigate the government narrative. The, the, the military officers went so far as to attempt to forensically clean the scene. They gathered bullets. They tried to clean blood. One witness who actually we didn't speak to but gave evidence to the inquiry described um, just the most awful um, situation where she was shot and they thought they'd killed her. So they oh swept God. her up along with the other bodies that they were disposing of, put her in the back of a van. And while they were gathering more bodies, she both, and I, I'm in awe of this woman, she both had the, the composure to count how many bodies were in that van with her, 11 in total, wow. and escape. Um, and so a, a little part of me feels like we have validated the instinct that people have, not just to speak to us, but, but to get their story out. Uh, and I think that's... Um, the Nigerian government has not offered us an apology, I, uh, although the commission said that they, they should offer an apology to everybody caught up in Lekki. I'm not saying I was caught up in Lekki, but there's a tiny part of me that slightly wants to push for an apology. We're not going to get it. Um, <laughs> you know, the troublemaker. But, uh, you know, I think for me, it just um, it, it verifies that what we do matters even when when maybe the world leaders don't want to do their job i mean you don't have to do this you had a, a perfectly wonderful day job in the obama administration and then you guys set up pod save america like i just i'm a massive cheesy believer in the power of, of journalism and the media yeah well i'm not going to for one second let you compare uh, me reading underwear ads <laughs> in uh, la studio to uh the reporting you did uh, on you know in sudan in in nigeria everywhere else but uh yeah it's an enormous validation of the work you do and so thank you for everything you do for cnn for coming on the show at like midnight 1 a.m london <laughs> time whatever it is right now because you know very few people are covering this uh it's increasingly hard and expensive to get to places and it's dangerous but uh Thank God you do what you do. So we really appreciate it. No, thank you guys so much. 
Thanks again to Nimba for doing the show. Thanks again to the people of Australia for... Solidarity, guys. Solidarity. Yeah, I mean, yeah we, we got your back. We got your back. I mean, I I don't know how many divisions Candace Owens has. I guess if, if Trump wins, though, she could be Secretary of Defense. And that yeah, she probably has the uh, the Daily Wire's um, full backing, their militia force, so they can send over there. Yeah. We'll see. Anyway, that's all we got for today. Talk to you guys <laughs> next week. See Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side.